Hello, and you are listening once again to the Exchanges Discourse podcast with myself, uh, Dr. Gareth J. Johnson. We are a companion podcast to the Interdisciplinary Exchanges Journal, which we've published since 2013 at the Institute of Advanced Study at the University of Warwick. Now, in each episode, we often speak to authors who've published with the journal about their research, their academic publication experiences, and also we look at their advice for new authors too. In other episodes, we focus in on developments at the journal or scholarly communications in general. Today, though, we are speaking to one of our past authors, so let's get on with that. So, this morning, I am joined by Rebecca Stone. Rebecca, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Now, I always like to let my guests introduce themselves, so you can tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you're up to at the moment. Thanks. Uh, My name's uh, Rebecca Stone and I'm an Associate Professor in the History Department here at Warwick. I'm a specialist in uh, modern American history and I focus primarily on political history, thinking about the US presidential system, looking at elections and considering is it important who is elected president? We often think about uh, US presidents in terms of the party they come from, or perhaps their background or their policies, but we don't often have that many conversations about who they are as people, their formative experiences, which state they grew up in, how old they are, other than obviously you know, contemporary conversations about Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump's age. But I like to think about presidents as would it make a difference if a different Democrat had been president at a particular point in history, if a different Republican had won uh, the nomination? And and, uh, how do the influences on those people's lives actually create major policy decisions in the most powerful country in the world? That sounds absolutely fascinating. I mean, I've I've always enjoyed following American politics myself. I think I follow it more than I follow British politics. Now, whether that's because it's more theatrical at its heart, maybe because it's following a different country, as you say, a very powerful country. And it is such a different system. It is just such a different, the different personality, the different sort of tropes almost that that, that come through. I mean, I feel narratively, it's a fascinating area, let alone the kind of historical imperatives or indeed, you say, the alt um, alternative that come up there. So, well, that's, that sounds really interesting, uh, Rebecca. Fantastic. Now, of course, what we've got you on the podcast to talk about today isn't, sadly, American presidential history, which we'll perhaps maybe come back to <laughs> late, later on. But obviously, it's the article you published um, with Exchanges um, a while back for one of our special issues. Yes, I was so excited to publish this uh, article with Exchanges because it focused on another area of my work that I am really passionate about, Mm. and that is the student experience in higher Mm. education. One of my other strands in research is thinking about higher education both as an historical entity and again one that is heavily influenced by US presidents. This Mm. is quite a significant Mm. theme of my research. And also thinking about the contemporary experience that students are having today and how we as working academics can augment and improve the the understanding that students have of what they do when they're at university, why they're doing what it is that they're doing and how we can improve their day to day lives whilst they're here. Laudable aims, I have to say, and, and again, 
very interesting topic. Now, for those of you who haven't read the read the paper, um, there will be a link actually in the podcast episode description. It was called Scaling Up the Pedagogical Legacy of Then and Now. I know it's always a challenge when I ask this of my guests, but you know, could you perhaps summarise uh, what the paper was about, Rebecca? Yes, absolutely. So the paper was a response to a different project that had taken place at Warwick uh, just before the pandemic and actually continued uh, during uh, lockdown as well, Mm. which was called the Then and Now History at Warwick project, which was led by my colleague, Dr. Kat Woods. And it sought to engage Warwick students in uh, creating a history of Warwick University and specifically, again, the student experience at Warwick University to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the founding of Warwick. My paper was a response to that. Once this project, the Then and Now project had ended, I was very keen for Warwick students to continue to benefit from the ideas that had grown out of that project. Um, But unfortunately, the then and now project in its current iteration wasn't scalable across the student Mm. body. So Mm. I did a project across, I think it would be, I think it was 2021 um, Mm. when I started working on it uh, to ensure that the methodological learning that had come out of the then and now project of how we can use large scale freeform research projects for undergraduate arts students could be shared across successive generations of arts students here at Warwick. So that's what the paper sort of explored and attempted to mm. solve. Well, thank you very much for that. And like I say, it's it's well worth a read, listeners. So if you've uh, got the chance, do go and have a look at it. I always remember, actually, the, the com- first conversation I had about the Then and Now project when I was approached to um, consider this special issue. It was one of my last face-to-face meetings I had ahead of the pandemic period. So it, it always has a special place in my memory as a result. <laughs> so. Yes, it was a bit of a shock, actually. I mean, that's probably uh, an enormous understatement when mm. we're talking about lockdown. But um, I had not long returned to work after um, a period of maternity leave, Mm. in fact, and I'd been working on the Then and Now project with Catherine um, for about 10 weeks at this Mm. point. And I remember standing in my office, which I shared with Catherine, and having a conversation with her saying, I think we are going, I think the university is going to close. It was the end of term, so it seemed likely that over the Easter period we would close down. And because the Then and Now project wasn't a term time only project, it wasn't on a module, we had intended to continue to have face-to-face meetings and to continue to work on this project over the Easter break. And I said to Kat, I I don't think we're going to be able to do this. We and this is again obviously at a point when we didn't, you know, Zoom and Teams existed, but we had never used them. Mm. So we really need to think about what we're going to do if this happens. And I I have a very clear memory of Kat saying, that's not going to happen. I don't think (laughs) I don't think that that seems a bit extreme. Um, There aren't any cases around here. This isn't this isn't going to happen. And I think by the end of the day, the university had closed. And of course, we didn't then return I think nearly for six months um, yeah. after that to to the Warwick campus. It was a long, long time that Warwick was the Warwick campus was closed. So we had to do a very quick pivot because the project was due to be delivered in June, mm. uh, and this was late March. So how we entirely redesigned that project 
was um it was it was really quite an experience of mm. shifting everybody all of these students online different people in different parts of the country different countries different access to tech different time zones and we had this big Warwick 50th in person event planned for June that was going to be really exciting and that had been the whole focus of this project up to that point needless to say that didn't happen but the way that we we uh, augmented that project to to function online and created an online exhibition that that really celebrated Warwick history even as we uh, celebrating a yeah. Warwick campus that we could not access uh, it was something that we were really, really proud of at the time. And I think actually it offered a bit of a lifeline to those students who mm. were suddenly, a lot of them were PhD students and were um, were experiencing lockdown in university accommodation. A lot of them were in isolation as well. I think that project actually offered a bit of a lifeline to some of the people that were working in it and, and gave us a bit of focus and a bit of stability at a time when we weren't getting those things elsewhere. Yeah. It reminds me of the time in one of my other uh, capacities, I was organising a conference for um, September that year. And I can remember the kind of lockdown period it was going, we are going to have to somehow turn a conference that was designed to specifically, its primary aim wasn't the content, it was about bringing people together in a space to network. <laughs> and it's like, we need to explore these platforms, we need to explore these um, different routes to doing what we need to do to bring people together but in something that none of us had the skills at the time or certainly felt confident with the skills mm -hmm. in hosting an event so i absolutely resonate with what you've been saying there and I, yeah it, it, it was for us and for the, our delegates it was, did work out to be beneficial in the end yeah, my lord absolutely. what a learning curve <laughs> it was a learning curve and actually this is what really fed into the article that i wrote for exchanges mm. for scaling up the project because it was conceived initially as an in-person project was very limited in scope for what we could do and how many students we could invite to work with us mm. on projects like this these kind of big freeform uh, research projects as an in-person entity is actually quite limited. Um, it requires physical spaces which have a cost attached to them and a lot more of, of my time as a leading researcher on the project. What I was able to do with scaling up in a response to the pandemic, because obviously at this point as well, we were still not in, in, in that first lockdown, but we were still coming going in and out of lockdowns. And um, we I think we'd had some in-person teaching by this point, but we're also about to go back into another lockdown. Mm -hmm. um, so I was able to create a, a way of delivering research projects for undergraduate students online that actually meant it was a lot easier to do this so what the article discusses is a methodological approach to how other institutions and other departments and other mm. research leaders can utilize that methodology to deliver learning community for students in an online space. So the those experiences, those formative experiences we had with then and now were incredibly important to helping us as an academy, I think, learn how we can use these technologies that, that like i said existed before but nobody was really using in order to create positive student experiences for students and allow for learning experiences that deliver skills learning that cannot be embedded on modules so things like 
learning community outside of your department interdisciplinary learning which is still very difficult to provide within singular disciplines and also the opportunity to fail which was something that our project was very keen on allowing students to do um, it's something that employers repeatedly talk about that students these days coming well i shouldn't say students these days in fact students generally mm. come out of university having been successful and most likely having been successful for the majority of their lives um, and when they are presented with failure in their working lives students can find that incredibly stressful incredibly difficult and not necessarily always have the skills to deal with that so these big freeform research projects because they don't have an assignment attached to the end of them they have an output but that output is not graded uh, the output is not graded so what we say to students is go big come up with a mad project come up with something that you don't think you can deliver mm -hmm. and try and deliver it through a medium that you don't think you can reach so for example with then and now one of our main outputs was publishing with exchanges mm -hmm. which is a huge goal for undergraduate students to Absolutely. meet um, to publish their own work in a professional journal but actually the students managed to do it um, as that that special issue is is testament too so we push students on the project to to go big to think of something that they they don't think they can deliver another another group of students at a later point delivered a a card game that is now available for purchase um, mm. that's focused on early modern witchcraft and they they did not know when they started the project that they would actually be able to meet that goal now on a module you can't ask students to do that no um, you can't say aim for something that you don't know that you can deliver and if you fail you'll just get a bad grade and you'll have yeah. to carry that grade through with you until you graduate mm -hmm. but on our project we push students to to think outside the box and a lot of times they don't meet what they said they mm -hmm. were going to meet and they have to rethink their outcomes rethink their aims rethink their scope and these are all fantastic learning skills that then they can apply to their modules but also really uh, benefit students when they go out into the world afterwards uh, after they graduate as well i love that kind of experiential learning um I, myself i mean it's when I mean, you're talking about failure there i mean i've mm -hmm. so many times in professional situations where i've been talking to people saying you know we need to you know not just learn to fail but actually celebrate the failures and what we've learned from those experiences and certainly in my own career i have learned from those times things have gone completely upside down far more than when they've gone well yeah um, I, this is exactly you've hit the nail on the head there reframing students understanding of failure to say there is there is no way you will make it through your professional life or your personal life not experiencing these things but the important thing to focus on when this happens is how do you respond to it what have you learned to it and what do you do next um, and giving students a safe space to experience that was a really key element of uh, the project that i wrote about for exchanges well it sounds simply fabulous rebecca i have to say i mean I've, i would have looked a bit of student on that myself <laughs> <laughs> I, I always like to sort of, you know sort of move on from sort of talking about the, the, your past activities and talking about you know what are you up to now and what's your you know your focus your publishing aims or anything you're mm -hmm you'd like to share with our listeners today yeah i've got a few uh, uh projects that i'm currently working on one is uh focused in my academic research which is as i mentioned was presidential history and i'm currently just putting the finishing touches on a uh, an academic book that focuses on uh harry truman which who was president during the uh, early cold war 
thinking about how his formative experiences as a young man growing up in Mississippi, sorry, as a young man growing up in Missouri. Um, <laughs> they're, they're both M states, so I can understand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thinking about Harry Truman as a young man growing up in Missouri, which was a southern state, uh, very much post-Confederate state, mm -hmm. uh, when uh, Truman was uh, a young boy there, who was very, very focused on education, which was unusual. Uh, for a young boy from what was essentially a farming state. Mm -hmm. He came from a farming family, uh, but he was, in his words, uh, a very nerdy child. Um, <laughs> he wore glasses, very thick glasses. He had the fantastically named syndrome of flat eyeballs, which precluded him. <laughs> precluded I've never him. heard of that before. I have a feeling it might, it's, it's sort of a, uh, I'm sure there's a, a much more... Um, modern medical term yes. for it now but I, I i'm a big fan of of flat eyeballs and uh, this precluded harry from from a lot of the the traditional pursuits of young boys growing up in missouri at this point so he uh, focused really hard on education he mm. he went to school he was the only boy in his town to go to secondary school at this point again a very uh, interesting element of the u.s education system as in in stark contrast to the british education system young women were much more likely in southern states to go on to secondary education mm -hmm. than young men were so Truman was 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 endured a lot of bullying for this uh, and was was termed by his his uh, friends in the town as a sissy at the time. But he endured that and he went through because he was determined to go to higher in onto higher education. And uh, unfortunately for Truman, his father had a, a big business catastrophe just as he turned 18 and was not able to pay for him to take up the place that he had earned at university. Truman then spent many, many years uh, trying to return to higher education and failed many times. Uh, we've just been talking about the history of failure. Truman is a mm. man who failed at everything he did, uh, pretty much, until he uh, entered US politics, at which mm. he was fantastically and un unreasonably successful, <laughs> a man that should never have become president, mm. uh, and through a number of, of absurd situations, in fact, did manage to make it to the highest office, where he put a huge amount of energy into trying to ensure that nobody suffered the same experience that he did, of not being able to enter higher education, because of a barrier that had nothing to do with mm. intelligence. He was he was determined that every young person, every young American who wanted to enter higher education would have this opportunity. Truman was not a skilled politician and he failed. He did mm. not manage to implement any of the uh, augmentations to the US higher education system oh, that he wanted knowing, to. Knowing what, I, knowing what I do of the cost of US higher education. <laughs> <laughs> But it's a very interesting story that this young man who was denied education at every turn still managed to make it to the highest office in the land and put a huge amount of effort into attempting to influence a system that in the States has absolutely no federal oversight whatsoever. So the US federal government has no place attempting to augment US higher education, but this did not stop Harry Truman. <laughs> uh, and he tried many, many different uh, back doors, yeah. uh, which is what the book is about, all the different things that he tried in order to 
to create access uh, and not just access for low-income families but access for black communities for jewish communities we're talking about a post-war context as well when there'd been a lot of jewish immigration into the us and in incredible efforts to try and make U.S. higher education a more inclusive and welcoming mm -hmm. space, which is not a conversation that we often have about the U.S. higher education system. And interestingly, the blueprint that he laid out for U.S. higher education, every element of it was adopted at some point in a late at a later date. So mm -hmm. access for black communities, access for religion, um, access to uh, funding, uh, community college blueprints all of these different ways of creating access to US higher education, every single one of them was implemented after the Truman administration, but crucially not by Truman himself. That sounds a riveting read, Rebecca. I shall look forward to seeing that when that's out. <laughs> I'll keep you posted. Oh, please do, please do. I genuinely would love to read that, I have to say. <laughs> I'm pleased to hear it. <laughs> it's not the only thing that I'm working on at the moment, though. I am, a, I am a, an academic with my my foot firmly placed in two different disciplines and the other true passion that I work on is student experience in higher education mm. um, and again this really relates to and feeds into my historical research looking at the US higher education system as well so what I am currently working on in that space with my colleague uh, Jess Humphreys who is also resident here at Warwick is looking at digital pedagogy in a post-pandemic world so thinking about the explosion in digital pedagogies and that is not thinking about uh, online learning but how we're using the digital in face-to-face -face classrooms so perhaps embedding assessments in modules that include uh, digital elements such as asking students perhaps to make a podcast or to build a video and how we are embedding these digital pedagogies into modules but also crucially why we have suddenly seen an explosion in these pedagogies making their way into higher education beyond the obvious of a post-pandemic climate mm -hmm. and trying to think critically about whether or not these pedagogies are the right fit mm -hmm. for where we're seeing them going and if students actually want these developments or not really interesting because I know with well, my own teaching over the last few years you know I've discovered tools I never knew existed and so obviously I'm still going back to them but I still think the back of my head there must be things that I don't know of that I could use in ways that I haven't yet thought of yes <laughs> that would be yes. so effective in my t own teaching practice so I, th I think discussions about this you know the whole area of digital pedagogies is just so relevant to all of us within the academy right <laughs> This is exactly the thing that we are trying to influence at the moment. So Jess and I have built a digital pedagogy library that is uh, situated on the Warwick website and is open to anybody, in fact, who would like to submit to it. If anybody at either Warwick or any other university uh, across the globe has any examples of ways in which they use digital pedagogies in their own teaching to improve student learning and student experience, you can submit that uh, methodology to the digital pedagogy library and we share it far and wide across the sector to try and encourage uh, other working academics to think about ways in which we can use all of these uh, incredibly complicated and also incredibly simple uh, modern technologies to improve student learning from a number of different perspectives that might be to improve inclusivity in the classroom 
or to uh, meet a specific learning aim but also crucially and we're really quite shouty about this in the digital pedagogy library to improve uh, student fun in learning mm. we are really passionate about the fact that learning can be fun Absolutely. even at university and the more fun it is the more effective it often is uh, and also to create more authentic pathways in learning as well. We're big fans uh, in the humanities of essays and exams, and I'm not a big fan of the the exam as a as a pedagogy. Essays definitely still have their place, but if you write two essays per module for every module that you take at university, that's eight a year. You're going to be doing you know 24 essays across across the uh, course of your degree. That's a lot of essays, and perhaps mm. there are other opportunities. Uh, that students can engage with as well that will give them a range of different skills that will better prepare them not just for the workplace but for the modern world yeah. um, as well and and also just again just be a little bit more fun um, students can really enjoy learning how to make a podcast make a video do a thousand different things you know the the card game project that I, I mentioned earlier that was an entirely digital project that simply wouldn't have been possible five years ago yeah. but now the right programs exist to allow students to build a fully playable game without ever actually creating anything physical even really basic mm -hmm. stuff like um, ai art generators anybody who plays card games regularly knows that art is a really important feature of that and actually teaching our students how to use these tools and how to access them can completely transform how they understand history how they understand the work that they are creating and the purpose of the work that they are creating as well and that's a really important element essays often don't have much of an afterlife but if you're building a board game you can keep playing that until the day you die i went to a conference a few years ago where a man spoke there who his whole output was in research focused board games Mm -hmm. simply yeah. one of the best talk of the thing. entire conference it was yeah. fascinating pedagogy fascinating research practice so i love the sound of that mm -hmm. yeah and this is what we're trying to promote but with a critical angle and that angle mm. is really key to say are we just embedding these some of these pedagogies because they're shiny and new do they actually meet the learning outcomes that we need to be providing for our students and are we scaffolding our students appropriately to know how to do these modern mm. assignments, explaining properly why we're asking them to do them, and also making sure that we are bringing the students along in that conversation as well. Do they de do students actually want to have the opportunity to do a few essays and exams mm. alongside these other things? And there's also, I think, there has to be now a question of well-being in higher education at every step of curriculum development to say if we are asking students to make a podcast as an assessment as a, as a something that will be crucial to their graduating grade are we creating unnecessary stress because we are not scaffolding that, that assignment appropriately we can't assume that because students are 20 years younger than us mm -hmm. they will definitely know how to make a podcast and if we say off you go actually we can be creating a huge amount of undue and unnecessary stress that wouldn't have been present if we embedded a more traditional assignment. I love your, what you're saying about fun as well there Rebecca, um, I mean I, as someone who's used the game show format to teach in the past, yeah. teach copyright mm -hmm. on the grounds of it's one of the dullest subjects to teach people, particularly PhD <laughs> students, they don't want to know about it because I'm coming in to tell them 
basically everything you're approaching with your thesis is actually riddled with the difficulties and legal challenges but let's approach it in a game show context <laughs> and, and together we will learn what is, what is copyright and what is copy wrong it helps it's my style of presentation anyway more game show folks <laughs> yeah. so I, I love to hear that you know there is you know, serious disc academic discussion going on about that as well it's a really important feature of education that i i just don't think we talk about enough we talk a lot about learning outcomes and mm. um, skills and and employability and all of these other things that are absolutely important but i would like to see a lot more discussion in higher education about enjoyment of the mm. course mm. Uh, and not assuming that students are going to enjoy their course simply because it's a discipline that they've chosen mm. for something like history obviously that is a little bit easier for us we can we tend to assume if students have chosen history they probably do enjoy history uh, but that's absolutely not the, tr the, the case for every academic discipline there's lots of reasons why students choose certain disciplines and a lot of it has to do more with future prospects they may not find that that particular topic exciting and enjoyable in and of itself but there's lots of ways in education that we can create fun in the classroom and a really important knock-on effect of creating fun in the classroom is that you create learning communities yeah. if students are having a good time in classroom in the classroom setting they're a lot more likely to engage with each other and to engage with each other outside of the classroom mm. and an article that i'm actually working on at the moment is about friendship methodologies in higher education again with with my colleague jess humphreys thinking about how we can uh, engage with friendships to build learning communities and how important friendship is in higher education to create engagement if you know that the module you're going to the lecture you're going to the seminar you've got this afternoon uh, your friends are going to be there you're a lot more likely to attend you're a lot more likely to speak up in class and you're a lot more likely to engage with the module it's the same as as any you know if we have to walk into a room where we don't know anybody that's a really difficult thing to do but if we have to walk into a room where we don't know anybody and everybody else knows each other that's basically a nightmare situation so thinking I've, about I've been, I, yes i've been to conferences we've been like that <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah oh hello and no everybody else is already talking and yeah. how do i get into some of these conversations <laughs> rather yeah. than just, other than with the pot plant in the corner <laughs> This is absolutely true. It's actually, it's, it's changed the way that I've approached conferences as well. Mm. I was at a conference last week where I was very much one of the academics who knew everybody else in the room. Mm. It's a conference mm. I've been attending for about 10 years now. And a lot of my, my friends were there and it was a really enjoyable experience for me. And but this research that I've been doing recently really allowed me to look around the room and think that person's uncomfortable. That person doesn't mm. know anybody this person needs an introduction. So actually then moving out of my comfort zone to go and speak to people I didn't know enabled me to have a really different experience of that conference and hopefully improve the experience that that especially PhD students who mm. were, were new mm. to the organization were having at that conference as well. But this is a really important thing to be thinking about in higher education is how are we creating these learning communities and it's communities not community there needs to be lots and lots of different communities so that students can find the right place for them if we create one history-based learning community that is by definition going to exclude some people but if there's lots of different communities happening concurrently hopefully that way 
everybody will be able to find somewhere that they can they can fit in they can experience university in the way that they want to and that's really transformative for engagement in education it's the best thing that we can do to be promoting a happy experience at mm. university and that's almost a perfect segue there rebecca into my next <laughs> question which is coming away from all that wonderful stuff you know but thinking back on publication because you know we're a journal and so often mm -hmm. we talk about publication here at the podcast and i do always like to ask my guests for their horror stories if they have them of their publication experiences oh i've got them <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Excellent. absolutely <I> mean... <laughs> yes um uh, there's one that always sticks out to me and i shan't name and shame the journal oh, absolutely um, absolutely yes <laughs> As a, a younger academic, uh, which is a horrifying thing to say now that I've said it out loud, um, <laughs> <laughs> when I submitted uh, only the second article that I'd ever submitted to a journal, and it was a piece that I was extremely proud of, I had worked very, very mm. hard on. Uh, I submitted it to a relatively prestigious journal and uh, had it accepted for to, to be taken under review. And this this yeah. journal was prestigious enough that often you could be rejected before mm, the peer mm, review process mm. so i was extremely pleased to find that my article would be going out to peer review and then i waited and 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 again it was only the second article i'd ever submitted and it it was a, a much much bigger journal than i had ever uh, submitted to before so after about a year which I now understand to be a chronically long time for mm. peer review. But at the time, I genuinely wasn't sure, sure. 12 months, I got back in touch with the journal and said, look, mm. can you let can you at least just give me an update? I've heard nothing from you about this peer review process for 12 years, to which a junior editor responded saying, oh, my goodness, our peer review process is supposed to take six weeks, uh, which was a shock to me. Mm. Uh, I'm going to find out what's gone on. So I waited probably another two months and eventually somebody got back to me to apologise profusely that one of my one of the reviewers unfortunately had passed away. Oh, good Lord. And so the, the piece had been completely lost. The peer review process was going to have to start it all over again with brand new reviewers. But the, the junior editor assured me that they would they would try and turn it around as quickly mm. as they possibly could. About six months later, I got another communication from the journal saying that my piece had been accepted by reviewer one, as it so often is, but reviewer two had some comments, as they so often do, and wanted me to make some fairly major changes to this piece. But this was all, this was good news. This was good news because a very prestigious journal. I was happy to make the changes mm. as they were mm. laid out. They were quite substantial changes. It took me several months mm. to mm. to work my way through. Eventually sent it back again, only to then find another communication. We're probably easily two years after the yeah. initial yeah. submission by this point. That reviewer one had accepted the changes again, especially considering they hadn't suggested them in the first place. Reviewer two still wasn't happy and had suggested fairly major substantial changes again at this point the editor of the journal the senior editor had mm. gotten uh, gotten involved the chief editor to suggest that actually what we needed in this case was a reviewer three so they sent my piece out then to a third reviewer who came back and eventually decided that they agreed with reviewer two that there were still changes that needed to be made and that 
bearing in mind it was two and a half years after mm. submission at this point, it would probably be, be better just to reject the piece outright. So hours of work later, we're talking, you know, this is the, I have spent weeks and weeks and weeks of my life working on this after having created, mm. you know, the article in the first place, one of a piece that I was genuinely incredibly proud of to just be rejected uh, outright after two and a half years of work on this piece. So disheartening. Yes, uh, the way in which that was handled was, again, at the time, I was young enough not to know any better. These days, Mm. I I would have found that incredibly shocking, incredibly disheartening. Um, Not a professional way to deal with a young academic at all. We do occasionally, unfortunately, exchanges have papers that seem to run on in review for far too long, in my opinion, as well. And that's the point at which you know, I, I would be quite understand if the author just pulled the, the piece and took yes, it elsewhere. It's completely understandable. That. And, you know, I'm, I would have no issue with that. It's, unfor- it's unfortunate, but yeah, that does sound particularly yeah. lengthy. <laughs> Yeah. I think the longest I had was when I submitted that was my very first academic paper mm. that from submission to publication was three years. And, you know, I changed jobs in between that. So it was no <laughs> yeah. longer relevant. It was talking about a thing that was current at the time. And mm-hmm. um, by the time it came out, no, not really uh, much relevance to it. Although they did then put it in, the, in there was a collected edition that it came out yeah. in as well. There was a bonus. So I got a book chapter out of it. Mm-hmm. Oh well, yeah. swings and roundabouts. He goes on the CV. So yeah, this is the thing. I was so disheartened by that process that I shelved the article, and I've never mm-hmm. returned to it. Um, perhaps I should, but you're so right in what you say. When you it, it, articles capture a moment, yeah, and when it takes that long from from submission to publication, mm-hmm. so often the things that we end up publishing mm-hmm. just aren't relevant anymore. Yeah. The, the 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 process needs to be so much quicker and of course articles are supposed to be the the speedy route to publication um because books will take you a decade mm-hmm. to get out as i am so keenly aware at the moment whilst, uh, <laughs> putting the finishing touches on something i started working on in 2016 mm. so uh, and a very different climate for presidential history from when i started the book i started i started writing in earnest yeah. at a point when we were fairly sure that Hillary was about to be elected. And these ideas were were kind of coming through quite strongly mm. in, in my, my writing, then had to pivot hugely to a, a Trump climate, yeah. which made quite a big difference, but also added a, a real amount of weight to the thesis mm. that it does matter who we put in that seat. It's not just yeah. a Republican representative or a Democratic, mm. a, a Democrat representative. The actual individual has a huge amount of power, a huge amount of sway, and is not beholden to their party in the way that a British Prime Minister mm. would be. Mm. So mm. it's it really does matter who goes in that seat. So but yes, this 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 process from from writing to publication sometimes I think is can be so lengthy to mm. render your work just irrelevant by the end of it. <laughs> so on that note, Rebecca, and my, my last question is, well, now we are a journal that very often publishes folks who are earlier in their careers, so often that can be their very first article. As someone who is now obviously quite experienced in the world of publication, what's that key advice you'd like to pass along to them? That one golden rule, if you will, of, of approaching your early articles, Right. 
just write. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm sure there is, it is the advice that I wish I'd been given as a mm. young academic to just put pen to paper or perhaps, you know, something a little bit more modern and digital. But the only way to finish an article, to finish a book, to finish anything that you're writing is to write. Mm. Uh, and it doesn't need to be good. One of my favorite statements that I share with my students very, very regularly is that perfect is the enemy of good. Mm. And some if it's worth doing well, if it's you know the statement if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Mm. I prefer the statement if it's worth doing well, it's worth doing at all. If you want to write, just write something. If it's rubbish, that's fine. You've got something to work with. The worst thing you can face as a writer is a blank piece of paper. Yeah. Get something down, get a first draft down. It will probably be rubbish. That's fine. That's not a problem at all. You can then edit it. Editing is so much easier to do than writing. Improvements are so much easier than starting out. Sit down, set some time aside. It doesn't need to be very long. You'd be amazed how much you can write in an hour. Mm. And young academics these days are so overworked mm. that an hour might be all that you can get. But an hour is enough to start with. You can get 500 words down in an hour easily. I mean, I, I, I am such a fantasy of that kind of a visceral writing approach where, you know, if I've got that hour, I just write without editing. Yes. And it's just, I, I know this will be complete shash and the sentences will not, will run on and I'll, I'll repeat myself. But later on, in a day or two, I can come back with a pickaxe and start yes. chipping away at it and find the kernel of actual genuinely useful stuff I've written at the heart of that. Absolutely. And the thing is, as well, you might find when you come back in a few days, it's not nearly as bad as you thought mm. it was. Uh, and the bits that are a little bit ropey, you can fix. And before long, you will see an article start to appear. You will find that actually you do have something to say. Your research is is interesting and you've got an idea down but you crucially you have something to do you have something to say finish it submit it and let the reviewers tell you what's wrong with it don't agonize over it and try and make sure that it is perfect before you send it in because no matter what you send in and how perfect you think it is the reviewers will have something to say um, so i am a big fan of getting it down getting it finished getting it in and letting the reviewers tell you which bits they think are problematic, fix them, send it back. Being too precious over it is the death knell in academics. You, you've got to get it down, get it in and get it out. Uh, and especially as a young reviewer, if you can get it into the big journals, that's fantastic. Well done, you. But any journal is a publication mm -hmm. and it's all fantastic experience it's all fantastic experience and yeah so the, the best advice i can give to people who are starting out is to write well rebecca it has been a genuine pleasure talking to you today thank you so much for coming on the exchanges podcast thank you for having me i've had a great time and for those who were listening we were talking about that bank of resources digital pedagogy you'll find that's also in the links for this episode as well now And obviously, my thanks to Rebecca for that long and really interesting chat she had with us. For now, I've been your host, Dr. Gareth J. Johnson, for the Exchanges Discourse podcast. 
Obviously, if you want to find out more about the journal, there is a link in the episode description, along with information about Rebecca's uh, publications as well. You can, of course, always find us by searching for Exchanges Journal Warwick. You can get in touch with us for a question for the podcast or discuss potential submissions or indeed anything else you'd like to talk to us about via email as exchangesjournal at warwick.ac.uk or, of course, you can find us on Twitter or Mastodon as Exchanges IAS. Thank you so much for listening and please do not forget to like, share and subscribe in order to catch every episode of the Exchanges Discourse podcast. Podcast.